Well, good morning again. I'll switch pulpits. Came over here. Uh, you've heard them say, when you have two pulpits in a church, if you get in trouble at one, run to the other one. So, so I may be running back and forth this morning. But it's so good to be able to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of our Redeemer. And the reason I'm here uh, this morning is because our pastor Isaac and his family are on vacation. And uh, Lord willing, they will be back, back with us on Sunday morning, October the 17th. And so we are grateful that they can do that, but we miss them when they're not here. But uh, we'll keep them in our prayers, and I think I would be remiss if I did not ask the congregation to pray for Isaac that he'll be able to catch some fish. Um, first day they were down there, he sent me a picture of a fish that somebody else caught. So let's, let's pray that he catches one while he's there. As you know, we're here this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper, sometimes referred to as communion, sometimes called the Lord's Table. <clears throat> there are some uh, believers who refer to this observance as Eucharist, which is taken from a Greek word which means to give thanks. A very appropriate word, I think, in view of sharing communion together. And our word from the Lord today from the psalm we're going to read encourages us just to do that, to give thanks. You remember that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on Thursday night of His last week. He was observing Passover with the disciples. And He instituted the Lord's Supper and therefore took the meaning of Passover to a whole new level that we learn more and more about as we delve into the New Testament. And there is a group of psalms that came to be used at the Passover celebration. And that group of psalms uh, is referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. And Hallel is a Hebrew word, and you can probably guess what it means. It means praise. We get the word Hallelujah, partly from Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And the Egyptian Hallel came to be used during the Passover celebration. It's six Psalms, 113 through 118. And uh, just to ease your mind, we're not going to look at all six of them, but we are going to look at 118, the last one in the group. And somebody said to me earlier this morning, I'm glad you're not speaking on Psalm 119, which is 172 verses. There are 29 verses in Psalm 118. You remember at the end of the account when Jesus and His disciples were leaving the upper room, it says, and Pastor Ross reminded us of this, I think after about every communion service, it says they sang a hymn and they went out. Many believe that they probably sang from the Egyptian Hallel, which would have included Psalm 118. <clears throat> and I want to read through that psalm with you this morning. <clears throat> and uh, I want you to notice a couple of things about it before we read it. First of all, it's a celebration. 
Don't you love a celebration? Well, we've got a big one in Psalm 118. It was, we know that because we see it's a celebration to give thanks for a great deliverance because of the first verse. Look at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Look at the last verse, 29. Same thing, ditto. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. I'm going to just mention a quick overview, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to read through the psalm together. The first four verses, we see the leader, the psalmist, who I believe was a king, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, encouraging a group to give thanks to the Lord. Verses 5 through 18, this leader is speaking, and he's talking about why he's thankful. Then in verses 19 and following, we are invited to join in a a worship celebration with more voices being heard. Not just the psalmist, but a group of people with him. And we'll talk through that as we read down through these verses. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you again for bringing us here to this time and place. We thank you for your word that is living and powerful. Father, we pray that Your Word will point us to Your Son, and we pray that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and we pray You would bless our time together and that You would give us thankful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verses 1 through 4, the leader is speaking out, and he's encouraging a group. And he's saying, uh, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Two reasons. The Lord is good. Notice he doesn't say here, the Lord does good. He does. But the emphasis here is on the fact that the Lord is good. You know, sometimes we go through things in our lives that don't feel good. But the Lord is always good, even in those times. And He is good enough and great enough to be able to cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He gives a second reason for giving thanks. He says, for His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love are two English words translating one Hebrew word. And uh, it's, the, it, it's translated in different ways in different translations. It's a rich word. Um, I remember when we were on an Israel trip, uh, Kim and I, we, we got rings while we were over there. And we asked them to, to write in the ring, to engrave on the ring, His steadfast love endures forever. And I remember our Jewish guide, when we were talking about this Hebrew word, which is hesed, I said something that it means, and she said, yes, and more than that. It's a rich word. It means steadfast love. It means covenant faithfulness. Um, King James um, sometimes translates it loving kindness. 
Most of the translations in Psalm 23, 6 use the word mercy. Surely, goodness, and hesed, steadfast love, faithful love will follow me all the days of my life, will pursue me. So he's saying, give thanks to the Lord. His steadfast, loyal, covenant, faithful love endures forever. And then he calls on three groups to say his steadfast love endures forever. It's like a worship service where there's a response, kind of back and forth. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first two, and I'm going to ask you to respond on the third one. And what you're going to say are five words, his steadfast love endures forever. I just want to hear what it sounds like. What it may have sounded like when the psalmist did it with this group of people. I'm going to do the first two. He said, uh, first of all, he said to uh, Israel, he says, Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Now, both of these two groups had experienced God's loyal love many, many, many times over the centuries. The children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, when they crossed the Red Sea, when He provided for them in the desert, when He took them to Mount Sinai, when they finally crossed the Jordan and went into the Promised Land, the Lord always proved to them of His loyal love. They did not always show a reciprocal love, but the Lord was always faithful. The house of Aaron, that's the priest, they experienced the steadfast love of the Lord. I liked what he says about how he describes this third group. He says, those who fear the Lord, and I hope that includes us this morning. So I'm going to read the, the, the words that lead into it and then ask you to respond with me with those five words. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Then... What the psalmist does, he starts speaking in first person singular, and he says, let me tell you why I'm thankful. And I love it. Verse 5, he said, out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and He answered me and set me free. Short, sweet, to the point, but powerful. Spoken from the heart, and he said, out of my distress. Now, a lot of the psalms, I'm sure you've noticed, were written while the psalmist was in distress. And he's saying, Lord, how long? I'm going to be killed. What's going on? And that's my words. But you've read psalms like that. David wrote a lot of them. I remember when I was in Bible college years, decades ago, um, I came across a verse in psalm that I kind of took it personally. And it kind of, in a weird way, was a comfort. And the verse was Psalm 132, verse 1. Lord, remember David in all his afflictions. <clears throat> My name's David. <laughs> I took it personally. That was the, the other David, the, the King David. But many times, that's where David was in the Psalms. Here, the psalmist, we don't know who it was, Like I said, I think it's a king, but he said, I want to tell you about something. Out of my distress, I call 
the Lord answered and put me in a... By the way, the word distress means a tight place. And when it says, He set me free, it has the idea of putting me in a broad, open space. The Lord set me free. And then in verses 6 through 9, he gives a confession of faith based on that deliverance. And he said this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? By the way, this verse is repeated in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. The writer says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Back in Psalm 118 at verse 7, he said, The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And then in verses 8 and 9, he gives a rationale for this confidence. And he says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That almost goes without saying, but many, many times we don't practice this. We find other people or other things or other places in which we try to find refuge. But he said, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Man lacks the ability. Man lacks the generosity. Man lacks the affection. Man lacks the memory. Oh yeah, I need to help them. The Lord has them all in infinite measure. The ability, the affection, the generosity, and the memory to be there for His people. Then, what He does, He gives some more details about His deliverance. It's almost like He's going to say, okay, let me tell you a little bit more about what happened. In verses 10 through 13. And this is why I believe this is a king giving a testimony to a throng of people, to those people to whom he had said, Let Israel say, Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord say. This is what his testimony included. This is how tight his spot was. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was hard, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Notice the poetic way he's framing these verses with repetition. Surrounded, 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 surrounded. You ever been pursued by a swarm of bees? I never have by a swarm, but it only takes one or two to put me on the run. I can imagine. He's describing the, the, what the situation was like. He said it was like being surrounded by a swarm of bees, by a quickly kindled fire. It also is quickly put out. And then he uses repetition again. He says, I cut them off. I cut them off. I cut them off. But the best repetition is in the phrase, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. And we see a beautiful balance 
between God's sovereign power and human responsibility. He was doing something. He was involved. He was not passive. But he was empowered by the grace and the power of the name of the Lord he was serving. Kind of reminds me of what David said to Goliath. Before he was king, he was still a shepherd boy. And he came with his sling and five smooth stones. And he looked up at nine foot tall Goliath with all the stuff he had. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. The rest is history. The psalmist here is reminding us of his need for the power of the name of the Lord. And he describes his deliverance this way, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And then we come up here to verse 14. And this is like a summary testimony statement. And I would wager to say that the psalmist had heard these words before, had probably sung these words before, because they were written centuries earlier in another song that's been referred to as the Song of Moses. That's recorded in Exodus 15, after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. The Lord brought them across, destroyed the Egyptians. Then they had to break out in a song. And in verse 2 of chapter 15 of Exodus, we read these words that we read here in verse 14 of Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I believe the psalmist had heard the words before, maybe sung them before. But now it's like a new song. Because now it's my song. The Lord is my strength, my song, and my salvation. Moses had sung the victory song. Now it's the psalmist. And then we get to verses 15 and 16. And I love what he does here. He broadens the vision a little bit. Uh, Up to this point, it's been like one man in the service giving his testimony. Standing up here and saying, this is what the Lord did for me. This is what the Lord did for me. This is how bad it was. This is what the Lord, this is how the Lord helped me. But then in verses 15 and 16, he says this, after talking about his song and his strength and his salvation, he said, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Plural. Righteous is plural. He's including others here. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And when he's doing this on purpose, when he mentions the right hand three times, he's referring back to Moses' song again. Because in Exodus 15, verse 6, they were singing back then, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, 
shatters the enemy. And in verse 12 of Exodus 15, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. And now here he's talking about the right hand of the Lord coming through for the righteous, for all God's people. Now, I don't know what you think about or who you think about when you read in the book of Psalms the word righteous. We're introduced to it in the first Psalm where it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. When it says righteous, it's not talking about people who are perfect. You know that. David wasn't perfect. We find that out painfully. We're not perfect. We find that out painfully over and over again. When it says the righteous, it's not talking about people who've got it together, so to speak. You know, that that looks like somebody who's really got it together. There was a point in his life where David desperately didn't have it together. There are points in my life when I desperately don't have it together. And I'm reminded over and over and over again of my need for a Redeemer, for a Savior. But when it says the righteous, who is it? It's talking about people who trust the Lord. People who have come to see they need the Savior. They need the Lord. And they have been given a heart that want Him, that want to follow Him. And they find themselves falling, but they find themselves calling out in distress and being delivered again and again and again. So when he said, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous, I'm so glad he did that. He included the whole company of of the believers. And then I love what he does in the next two verses, 17 and 18. We hear another brief word of testimony. He's not through But here we also see a word of commitment, which goes along with his faith. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That's what he's been doing. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I think the psalmist is looking back on that tight spot in which he had found himself. I think he is looking back on those nations that were like a swarm of bees, like a fire breaking out, and looking back on all the distress and all the hurt, and he's recognizing a greater purpose in it all, and he said, the Lord has disciplined me. The Lord has taught me through all this. But guess what? He kept me alive. I shall not die, but I shall live. And he said, so what are you going to do, psalmist, with the days you've got remaining? He said, I will recount the deeds of the Lord. And that's what he did. I found out that Psalm 118 was Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, German reformer. Psalm 118 was his favorite psalm. And he had the words to verse 17, painted on his study wall. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. 
Now, there were a lot of people who wanted Luther to die. The Lord kept him alive long enough to be one of the ones through whom the Lord kindled the great Protestant Reformation that spread throughout Germany and the world. And we live in the results of that today. But the, the psalmist said this, I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord kept him alive. The Lord gave him a reason. And he's been celebrating a great deliverance. But he broadens it out a little bit more in verses 19 through 28. And we're going to see a shift in the psalm. And I love this shift because it's like the king has been coming, maybe with a throng with him, traveling toward the house of the Lord. And then arriving at the house of the Lord, we read words in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And verse 20, maybe, and I say maybe, just trying to understand the flow of what's happening in this little worship liturgy or in this worship service. This may be a priest in verse 20 responding with the words, Uh, that follow, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And so I'm visualizing the king and the throng with him going through the gate. And here's the king, and we hear him speaking again in verse 21. And he says this, again, short and to the point, I thank you that you have answered me. And have become my salvation. I thank you. That you have answered me. And have become my salvation. Remember what he said in verse 5. Out of my distress. I called. The Lord answered. And put me in a broad place. He set me free. You know. It just takes a few words. To say something powerful. If they're said from the heart. In the presence of the Lord. And these were powerful words. I think of two powerful words that Peter said one time. And he only had time to say two words. He had gotten out of the the boats, started walking on water, and then started sinking. And he said, Lord, save me. That's all he had time to say. But that's all it took. And the Lord did it. The psalmist said, I thank you. You've answered me. I think we see another shift in verses 22 through 24. And if I can put it this way, it's like the the congregation who are there have heard what has happened. They've heard the testimony of the king psalmist. They've heard what he has said. They've heard how he's been delivered. They've heard how he's given his thanks. And now we hear that they share a word of testimony. Verse 22 The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's the reason I I say I believe it's a group speaking now. It's plural. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. I think the psalmist was contagious. I think he had a good virus. 
that was spreading to the congregation. He had shared what the Lord had done. He's the king. It's important what happens to the king for all the people. And so they're looking and they're saying, the stone that the builders reject, it looked like the king at one point was just a rejected stone. The nations were swarming about him like bees and like fire. He was in a tight spot. It looked like he was going to fall. It looked like it was over. He said, I called to the Lord. And in the name of the Lord, I cut him off. The Lord came through. The Lord helped me. And they went on and said, He has now become the cornerstone. Now the cornerstone is the most important stone in a building. It's in the corner. And then all the other stones find their alignment from the cornerstone. So that they are brought together by the cornerstone. They are stabilized by the cornerstone. On a horizontal level, they're kept straight by the cornerstone. On a vertical, they're kept plumb by the cornerstone. The cornerstone is indispensable. They said the stone that the builders had rejected has become the the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And then the good virus keeps spreading. Verse 25, David, the, the psalmist, whomever it was, just about said King David, whoever it was, he had shared his prayer. Now the congregation prays and they say, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. They're praying like they had heard the psalmist pray. Then we hear a blessing. And this may have been delivered by, again, a priest at the house of the Lord. When he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, blessed is he, singular, who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember what he had said earlier? The psalmist said, I cut them off in the name of the Lord. I did it in the name of the Lord. And we hear these words there at the the house of the Lord. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on and says in verse 26, we bless you, plural, from the house of the Lord, the whole company that's here. And then the good virus keeps spreading. The congregation expresses their confidence in the Lord and their commitment in verse 27. The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And then in the next verse, we hear the single voice of the psalmist again. He's got something else to say. And he says it to the Lord. You are my God. And I will give you thanks. You are my God. I will extol you. And then we hear the last words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He's good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now this psalm, it begins with a testimony of deliverance that spreads to the congregation. It's a personal celebration, but it goes beyond that. It becomes communal. 
it's a, it's a psalm that's commemorative in that it's pointing back to something the Lord did in the past, but it's also expectant because it's pointing into the future. I said first it was commemorative. Remember he used a phrase from something he had heard earlier from a, a deliverance centuries before his own. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That was for Moses. He said that about himself. But we see that it's more than commemorative. It's looking into the future. In his last week, Jesus heard words from Psalm 118. And in his last week, Jesus spoke words from Psalm 118. And some believe that Jesus and Peter and James and John and the other disciples may have sung this psalm when they went out of the upper room. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper when they were celebrating Passover. That was on Thursday. Four days before, on Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And He heard these words from Psalm 118. And the crowds that went before Him and that followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Look back in Psalm 118 at verse 25 where the people are praying and they say, Save us. You know what Hosanna means, literally? It means save us. Save us now. In the New Testament, the word Hosanna is the transliteration of the Hebrew word, save us. That's here in Psalm 118. They say, Hosanna. And then they say, verse 26 of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they refer to him as the son of David. There's the crowd saying, this is the son of David. This is the king that was spoken of in Psalm 118. Now, I personally believe that the crowd on Palm Sunday were saying much more than they knew and much more than they understood. Perhaps much like what I do sometimes when I preach and teach. Many times I'm saying more than I know and more than I have experienced, but I want to experience. They, I believe, were expecting a political Messiah to come and deliver them from Roman domination. And they're saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the king had come. But Jesus was a far better king than what they were expecting. And he had come to do a whole lot more than they were expecting. He was coming to bring a much bigger deliverance than just from little Rome. He was going to deliver from sin, death, hell, 
Satan's deceptions and authority. Because Jesus came not only as a king, he came as a priest to bring his people to God. But Jesus came not only as a king and as a priest, Jesus came as the lamb. Now the house of Aaron, they gave a lot, offered a lot of lambs. Jesus came as the king, he came to be the priest, but he came to be the lamb. Because he came not only as a the reigning king, but as a suffering servant. Sometime later, after the triumphal entry, Jesus spoke these words to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. I'm quoting, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in Scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. Soon the king, the priest, the lamb, the rejected stone is going to experience the culmination of his rejection. Less than 24 hours from the time of the upper room with his disciples the Lamb of God will die on the cross as the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And the rejected stone that was crucified on that cross for us three days later would come out as the cornerstone. And then later he would start building his church, we read in the book of Ephesians, upon the foundation of of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Jesus knew that Psalm 118 was not only commemorative, it was pointing to a bigger deliverance. It was just getting ready to happen for us. You know, Peter... New Psalm 118, also, he may have sung it on that night, but in less than 24 hours, he's going to find himself denying the Lord. But a little bit later, he's going to be restored, and we're going to hear him preaching in the book of Acts to the religious leaders in Jerusalem these words. Acts 4.11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And a few years later, Peter would write these words in his first book. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. For it stands in Scripture, Peter says, and he's going to quote from Isaiah and Psalm 118. And he's going to say, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter had been put to shame earlier, but the Lord restored him. And Peter said, the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he says these words, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus spoke from Psalm 118. It was fulfilled in Jesus. Peter remembered the words. He was trusting in this Lord Jesus. And I'm so glad this morning that as we prepare to celebrate around the Lord's table and eat a piece of wafer that that represents His body and drink the juice that represents His shed blood, I'm so grateful that because the rejected stone is now the cornerstone, you and I can say some words from Psalm 118. Like these words, Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Because the rejected stone has become the cornerstone, we can say words like, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because the rejected stone has become the cornerstone, we can say, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Because the rejected stone has become the cornerstone, we can say the Lord is my strength and my song and He's become my salvation. Because the rejected stone has become the cornerstone, we can say, I thank You, Lord. You've answered me and have become my salvation. I like that tune, don't you? We need to sing, give thanks to the Lord to that tune, never what it was. That was pretty. Because the rejected stone has become the cornerstone, we can sing this pretty tune from Psalm 118. We can say, you are my God. And I will give you thanks. We can say, you are my God. I will extol you. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, the rejected stone, who is now the cornerstone, brings his people to... In a moment, we'll pray. It's got a top and a bottom. And this morning, the top is going to be where the wafer is. And in a moment, I'll ask you to take out the wafer... A little bit later, we're going to remove the top for the, for the juice. But I want to give a disclaimer about this. Later, when we remove the top for the juice, be careful. If you try to do it too quickly, you may spill the juice all over your dress or your shirt. 
So just kind of be careful with that. We're going to partake first of the wafer. And we're going to take a few minutes before I give thanks for the broken body of the rejected stone who became the cornerstone. But I'm going to give you a few moments to pray. And maybe just to say thank you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you have done so much for me. I've seen a whole lot of these little deliverances along the way. But the greatest deliverance was when you became my Savior. Also, it's a time to confess sin that the Lord may reveal to you before we take of His, of His table. I'm going to give you a few moments to pray silently. Then I will lead in prayer giving thanks. And then I'll read from Scripture before we take of the wafer. And you may take the lid off the, the top that has the bread and we'll be ready at that point. Would you pray silently with me? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that Your Son, Jesus Christ, was the rejected stone on our behalf. And that He became the cornerstone upon which our lives may be built. We thank You for His body and that He bore our sins in His body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord, as we partake, give us thankful hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And when He had given thanks... He broke it and He said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to give thanks to the Lord for the shed blood. Before I do, if you would take the lid off of that cup. And then again, I'll read from Scripture and we'll share together in the Lord's table. Father, we thank You that Your Son, Jesus Christ, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we thank You that He shed His blood on our behalf. And we thank You that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from sin those who trust Him. We give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same way also He took the cup after supper saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our benediction will be a closing hymn. And like the Lord and His disciples sang a hymn and went out, we will sing a hymn and go out. But I want you to think of the words as we sing together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Would you stand with us, please?